But tonight we're going to look at Genesis chapter 22. So if you'll take your uh, Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 2. Um, this is uh, called sometimes the sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, other times it's called the binding of Isaac. It's a uh, pretty famous story. Uh, I, I'm excited for us to be here. It's also a surprising story. If we just think about the context, even just reading the sacrifice of Isaac, chapter 21, the birth of Isaac, and now chapter 22, the sacrifice of Isaac, you wouldn't expect those, uh, those phrases to come after the other, right after the other in the Bible, especially knowing what we know about the birth of Isaac. We've been going through this for a long time now, and uh, also knowing what we know about the sacrifice here, that it's initiated by God. I heard uh, someone talking about this passage, and they said, it's totally unexpected. It's totally unexpected. You would never expect this. Though I uh, kind of wonder about that, you know, that saying that it's totally unexpected. It's sort of unexpected. But we need to go back and think a little bit about what's happening. So this is chapter 22, and in a sense, we're, we're coming to the end of the Abraham story. So you remember uh, Genesis has, it's divided up into like four parts. You have Genesis 1 through 11, and then you have three big cycles of stories in Genesis 12 through 50. The Abraham story, the Jacob story, and uh, the Joseph slash Judah story. And Abraham's story is technically from chapter 12 to uh, 25. But if we look at chapter 23, it's the death of Sarah and then chapter 24 is mostly about getting a wife for Isaac. So you could say this is the last big Abraham-focused story. And it's kind of like the climax to the stories that go before, actually. Almost. You could look at it that way, at least. You know how in a movie there's sometimes there's like a big moment um, and you think the movie's over and then there's just a couple more scenes after that where they're mostly wrapping up. This is kind of how... Uh, this part of the Bible works. And one thing that's interesting about this story that we're going to look at is that it has a number of parallels to the way the Abraham story begins. For example, uh, we're going to see that in both stories, God comes to Abraham and he says, go. If you look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, Abraham's story begins like this, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And uh, apparently the way he says it there are the only two times God says it like that because it's, uh, it's a little bit unusual in the Hebrew. So there's a connection. And both times, of course, he's calling on Abraham to go somewhere unknown uh, to the land I will show you. And here he says to the land of Moriah, uh, the land of vision, technically. And maybe Abraham knew where Moriah was, but we don't. This is the only appearance in the Bible of that phrase, the land of Moriah, um, one Bible dictionary explains, God's call to Abraham in Genesis 22 is reminiscent of his call in Genesis 12. In both cases, God calls Abraham to personally sacrifice family for divine service and to leave that with which he was most familiar and by faith go to some unknown and unnamed place that God would show him. And even if he knew where the land of Moriah was, he doesn't know which mountain. Uh, the end of the verse says, 
on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. And both times God is calling on Abraham to leave his family. So he's uh, being told to leave his father in Genesis 12. And as someone said, it's like God is saying, sacrifice your past. And uh, he's being told uh, that he's going to have to sacrifice his son here. So at the beginning, sacrifice your past. And here at the end, sacrifice your future. And these are the first and last times that we find God talking to Abraham. So there's a lot of connections. I think uh, Moses is intentionally linking these two stories. And those are just a couple of the connections. But maybe the most significant similarity is that God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 ends with, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You remember Genesis chapter 12, uh, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who, honor, who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we're going to see in this story in Genesis 22, verse 18, it ends with God's promise to Abraham. It says, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so how do both the call at the beginning to go and the call at the, go, the end to go end? They both end with the nations being blessed. So one man writes, from the beginning to the end, the meaning of Abraham's life is that he will be a blessing to the nations. This is the major theme of the life of Abraham. If you go back to even how it began, chapter 11, problems in the nations, chapter 12, God's promise to Abraham. And if you've been coming the past couple weeks, you know that's actually the theme Moses has been talking about ever since he made clear that God was going to fulfill his promise through Abraham's son Isaac. He's been talking about the nations. If you think about how the stories go from chapter 12, first he talks about descendants. Abraham doesn't have any children, but God promises them that he's going to make him a great nation. And then it tells us that Abraham obeys and his nephew Lot goes with him, and Lot's father is dead, so it's like Lot is a brother or son to Abram, part of his family in some sense. And so you might think the nations are going to come through Lot, but what happens is that Abraham allows his wife to marry Pharaoh, so in a sense puts his seed in jeopardy. How are they going to have children if she's married to someone else, but God protects her? And then Lot leaves Abram, and that has a lot of consequences, but there's also deliverance through Abraham. And then chapter 15, Abram talks to God about his problem. He says, you've promised to make me this great nation, but I don't have any descendants, So I guess it's, and Lot's left me, so I guess it's going to be through my servant Eleazar. And God says, no, it's going to be through one of your own offspring. And what does Abraham do? He believes God's promise about the seed, and it's credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's saved through faith in God's promise about the seed. But even though Abraham believes, his faith's not amazing yet. And so in the next chapter, we see this huge problem. You could almost describe it as the fall of Abraham. But it's got a lot of these similarities to what happens in the garden. It's like Sarah imitates Eve as she comes up with a plan that she thinks is better than God's. And so she thinks she has to help God a little and tells Abraham her plan. And Abraham listens to Sarah. And we meet this woman named Hagar. And she becomes Abraham's other wife. And they have a child. And we wonder if the promise is going to come through him. Maybe it's going to be Ishmael, whose name means God hears. Maybe he's going to be the promised seed who God's going to use to bring blessing to the nations. But chapter 17, God comes to Abraham. And he says, no, you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. It's not going to be Ishmael that I use to fulfill this promise. Ishmael's going to be blessed, but he's not the promised one. 
And so now by 17, we've got how salvation works, faith in the seed, and we know who the seed is going to be. And so in chapters 18 through 20, we get into this whole discussion about how the promise works. We know God's going to bless the nations through Abraham, but they're wicked. So is he going to overlook their wickedness? And the answer is no. He's a righteous judge. But at the same time, we see he's merciful, and he shows mercy in these stories by rescuing people on the basis of their relationship with Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham, and he relates to the world on the basis of that promise. He saves people on the basis of that promise. And we said that trusting that promise is a very good idea because God always keeps his promises. And in chapter 21, Isaac is finally born. And the way Moses describes his birth is, to is specifically designed to highlight that God kept his promise. It was impossible for man, but it was possible for God. And Sarah had this baby just like she, God said she would. But what about Ishmael? Next story, Hagar and Ishmael are kicked out of Abraham's household, which seemed like a hard providence, but that was part of God's plan to keep his promise to Ishmael and provide freedom for him. But that story was told, you remember, in such a way that it parallels Genesis 22. So we're looking at Genesis 22, and this story parallels Genesis 21, meaning there are a lot of similarities. Hagar and Ishmael have to go. Abraham rises up early put something on Hagar's shoulders, like we're going to see he put something on Isaac's shoulders. Those sons' lives end up being in danger as they're both in this desperate situation. Angels speak to them, and each story ends with a promise from God for future blessing. And so what do you do with that? It's a setup. It's a setup. One, God allows Abram to experience what Hagar experienced. Someone calls that poetic justice. But two, obviously Ishmael represents a nation, and he's blessed because of Abraham, so that's a partial fulfillment. But that fulfillment sets up for a bigger fulfillment because there's a pattern we see developing as we look at the stories about Isaac and Ishmael, and that's that every time God blesses Ishmael, what comes next is an even bigger blessing for Isaac. What God does for Ishmael, he does for Isaac in a bigger way. And so, yeah, of course, chapter 22 is unexpected, but there are some things that we're expecting as we come into this chapter. We know it's going to have something to do with God fulfilling his promise to Abraham about blessing the nations and explaining how salvation works. And I think we're going to see, it, it, what we're going to see is that it's going to help us understand how Abraham is going to be a blessing to the nations. Genesis 22 is going to help us understand how Abraham is going to be a blessing to the nations. His whole life is about being a blessing to the nation through his descendants. But how? Genesis 22, verse 1. Moses writes, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. So God tested Abraham. And that idea of uh, being tested would have been familiar to the people reading this for the first time. Because what did God do to them after they were delivered from Egypt? He uh, made them a promise and then he tested them. Uh, whether they were going to walk in obedience to him or not. So you can read about that in Exodus. But here he's doing that with Abraham. What happened to the father happened to the children. That's kind of a biblical pattern. And Moses wants us to know that God's testing Abraham before we read the story. So this is verse 1. And the very first thing that Moses wants us to understand about what we're going to read is that we're about to read a test. And that's significant because we're going to find God asking Abraham to do something that's really shocking. And we should be shocked, but at the same time, recognize that it's a test. God has told us that this is a test. And God has every right to do that because he's God. 
And what he's planning to do through Abraham is huge and totally undeserved. So he tests Abraham. We know that, but Abraham doesn't know that yet. God doesn't tell him it's a test. All he says to him is Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am, which is one word in the Hebrew. And it's going to be repeated three times throughout this chapter. Hanene. And apparently it doesn't have a very good English equivalent. It's something like at your service. But that sounds a little bit too much like a butler. But the point is, Abraham's like, yes, God, I'm ready. And that's going to be a theme here. We've seen Abraham in the past is a little bit questionable. But in this story, he's showing up in a big way. God speaks, Abraham listens, even when God says something really hard. Like he does in verse 2, Moses writes, And God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And you see what he's doing there, how he writes that. It's like he's speaking slowly so that we can feel the force of this. If you're telling a story about being in an accident, you might say, my car was totaled, my favorite car, the car I dreamed of having. You're trying to help people see how big a deal this is. And actually, he's also writing this in a way that sounds very much like what he told him back in Genesis chapter 12. He spoke in a threefold pattern like that when he told Abraham to leave his land, his people, and everything else behind. And this clearly is a very big deal for Abraham. Abraham's already had to say goodbye to Ishmael. And the way that was described in chapter 21 gave us the idea that it was very painful for him. Moses says it was very displeasing. So imagine if you had to say goodbye to one of your sons the way Abraham did in chapter 21, where he has to put this water on their back and kind of send them into the wilderness, um, not knowing what's going to happen to them, except that God had made a promise. That would, be, uh, that would be horrible. And now God's talking to Abraham about the son he has left and making clear that he knows how Abraham feels about Isaac. He's your son He's your only son, the son whom you love. Only son, not technically, but the only son he has there now, that's for sure. And the only son through Sarah, the only son he should have had if he had been obeying God. And the son whom he loves. And he says, I want you to take him to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So basically, go somewhere. And I'll tell you when you've gotten there and sacrifice your son. Which sounds terrible and would have sounded terrible to Abraham when he heard it. First of all, because they didn't really do child sacrifices in those days. I know that we sometimes think of the past as like they're just going around always wanting to do child sacrifices. And they did. They did. But... This was not common in Abraham's day. This wasn't something that people thought was a good idea. And they knew it was wrong culturally even. And he loved Isaac. That's clear. But what's even more significant is that this is the son that God had promised him. So think about all that Abraham's been through. Um, all that God's done to make clear that he was going to keep his promise through Isaac. I mean, how many years has Abraham, did Abraham wait for Isaac? And uh, God, God, in every which way, said, it's going to be Isaac. 
he is going to be the one that I use to reverse the curse and fix what's wrong with the whole world. So what does this sound like? It sounds like God's messing with Abraham. It sounds like God is not keeping his promise. And, and worse, if you look at it just on the face of it, it seems like God is evil. And that's ultimately the test, right? That's ultimately the test. So what does Abraham do? Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He doesn't wait long, though he does seem to wait a little. Uh, did God speak to him in the night? How did he sleep that night, R.C. Sproul? Apparently, my daughter was telling me last night, thinks that he didn't sleep well, and that's why he rose early in the morning. But I don't think so. I think he was a morning person. No, just I, I don't think that either, really. I'm just joking. But I, I don't think this is because he didn't sleep well that night, actually. Um, who knows how he slept. But the chapter before, when he, uh, when he said goodbye to Ishmael, it says he rose early in the morning. And actually, as we read through this Exodus, we're going to see... Uh, when someone's being faithful to a call of God, they often rise early in the morning to do it. We'll see that in Moses. I just read that this morning in my devotions, Moses rising early in the morning. And so I think this is Abraham. The, the main point is that Abraham is uh, going to be obedient to God as soon as he can. And uh, he rises early, verse 3 tells us, and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And you wonder, how much wood did he have to cut? Imagine uh, cutting that wood, knowing what it was for. But obviously, how much he had to cut kind of depends on how old Isaac was. And I'm not sure um, the exact ratio for burning to... Uh, to the size of a person, but um, how old was Isaac at this point? Um, Genesis 25, 20 tells us he was 40 when he got married to Rebecca. Genesis 21 has told us that he was weaned, which means that he that usually happened around the age of three. So he's somewhere between the age of three and, and 40. And uh, even more specifically, in chapter 23, Sarah is 127 years old, so she had Isaac at age 90. So that would make him 37 when she died, and this happened before she died. And so a lot of the ancient Jewish commentators actually think he was 37. That's, that's the, the, the most common among the ancient Jewish commentators on this. But we don't know. The fact that chapter 21 ends... And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines, and that chapter 22 begins by saying, after these things, seems to indicate that it was a good amount of time after he was weaned. So he, he wasn't a, a toddler, which makes sense because they had to go on like a three-day journey, and um, that's a lot of walking. And that makes us think that Isaac probably wasn't a toddler, or uh, he probably would have taken uh, not two young lads, but also a young <laughs> some servant to help with Isaac. Um, especially since we're going to see Isaac is the one who has to carry up the wood, carry the wood up the mountain, and that's going to be pretty heavy. So most people think that Isaac's a young man here, maybe even older than, than 20, which is going to be important for us to remember later. Um, you can look up. I, I did put him on slides, but then I didn't think to get it to Will early enough. But you can look up some famous paintings. There's um, it's fun Google. It, I mean, you could just Google Rembrandt. 
the sacrifice of Isaac, or Caravigio, the sacrifice of Isaac, or Gustave Dore, the sacrifice of Isaac. You could just Google famous paintings, the sacrifice of Isaac, and you'll see some pretty amazing artwork from the past where they're guessing the age of Isaac in their paintings, and it's pretty powerful, powerful images for sure, but he's probably a young man. And uh, verse 4, they're traveling, and it says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. And so that's the first time we find that phrase, the third day in the Bible, besides obviously the creation account, but that's the first time we find it used like this. But as you read through your Bible and your devotions, you're going to want to keep your eye on what happens on the third day. It's amazing how many things happen in the Old Testament on the third day. Usually it has to do with the seed, God rescuing Israel, God doing something very pivotal in salvation history in regards to the seed on the third day. And this is the, the first time we, we find that. And that becomes important as you get to the New Testament because the New Testament is going to say uh, that, of course, it had to happen on the third day, the resurrection of Jesus. And so why, why do the New Testament writers say that? Because there's not really... Uh, prophecies in the Old Testament about it having to happen on the third day, except for maybe one veiled reference. But they're like, no, it's obvious. It's so obvious. If you read the Old Testament, it ha he had to be raised on the third day. It's because this is how they read the Bible. They saw these patterns taking place and realizing that on the third day, God does something important in salvation history when it comes to his uh, seed. And so if Jesus is going to be raised from the dead, and he had to be raised from the dead, of course, it's going to happen on the third day. And anyway, this is the, the first time that we see that phrase like that. And it says, he lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And uh, how does he know this is the place? Um, it doesn't actually tell us. Uh, but somehow he knows this is the place. And uh, verse 5, then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, or young man, will go over there and worship and come again to you. Which is kind of interesting, right? Um, first of all, what's interesting about that? It's interesting that he has them stay behind. And even the donkey. So why does he have them stay behind? Um, why would he not take the donkey with him? Because he's like going up a mountain with wood. So I would probably want to take the donkey myself. But one reason he may have them stay behind is because he's going into a holy place. So this is something they need to do on their own. He's going to go meet with God. And you generally wouldn't take your donkey into the throne room of a king. And so maybe that's how Abraham thinks about what's happening. And then second of all, it's interesting that he says they're going to go and worship and come again. Because that seems like a strange thing to say. And you have to ask, is Abraham lying or is he telling the truth? Um, because we, we read this story, we've read it so many times, but you have to remember all this is happening to him without all the information that we have. And so we've got an answer, I think, I hope, we probably, you probably know. But let's start with lying. Why would, if Abraham were lying here, why would, he be, uh, why would he be tempted to lie? Is there any reason you think he might lie about what's gonna happen? Because he says we're gonna worship and then we're gonna come back, and it's plural, we're gonna come back. Um, one reason he might be tempted to lie is because this isn't like a normal thing to do. So uh, this is something that they would have thought was evil to do. 
And uh, maybe they would have thought Abraham was going a little crazy, like he's over 100 years old now, so yeah, maybe he's getting a little dementia and um, all of a sudden thinks he needs to kill Isaac. Is, like, is Abraham losing it? On the other hand, though, I don't think he's actually lying here. Uh, is he exercising faith? Is he telling the truth? And this is a demonstration of faith. Um, we don't know from the text exactly, but can anybody think of somewhere in the scripture that we are um, told that he was trusting God in this moment? Yeah, that's right. Yep, that's right. Exactly. Yes, exactly. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, so we know it's this, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, though through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead. And so it seems like he went to the mountain believing they were both coming back. And that's going to kind of be the, kind of be an important point of Genesis chapter 2, um, 22. But even though he believed he was coming back, he still took the wood. He still took the wood. It says, verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And so Isaac has to carry the wood that's supposed to be used to sacrifice him with which sounds like a picture many of the early church fathers would point to that as a, as a picture of Christ carrying his cross, but it certainly is a tragic picture. And it says that Abraham took in his hand the fire and the knife, and fire refers to what they started the fire with. It's probably some sort of stone they used to kindle fires. But they take that, and it says, verse, end of verse 6, they go both of them together. It's almost like you're with the... the uh, it's almost like you're with the servants and the donkey watching the old man and his son walk with Isaac with the wood on his back and Abraham with the fire starter and the knife. And as they're going, Isaac wonders something. Verse 7, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Which is actually the same phrase he used earlier, at your service, tenene. He said, behold, look. The fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Isaac's thinking here, and uh, this is the first time he speaks. So it's been a quiet three days, a very quiet three days. And it's interesting that he waited this long to ask this question, though, because he knows what they're going to do. And you would think he would have wondered it earlier, like, um, where's the lamb? That seems like, unless he was like a toddler, that seems like a question that most people would have asked a long time before the mountain. But I'm sure Abraham was deep in thought. Uh, it's, this was an intense three days. Seems like he's trusting his father. And maybe he thought they would purchase a lamb on the way. I, I don't know. I don't know. But he asks now. I guess it's getting closer, and he asks now. And Abraham's response is so important. It's a demonstration of faith, and it's also a kind of prophecy, whether Abraham knows it or not. Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And I like the repetition of father and son. It's a, it's a really moving scene. 
And it's also pointing us forward. God's going to provide. Literally, that is God will see for himself to the lamb for the offering up, my son. God will see for the, himself to the lamb. And this is the key shift because it, it's going to point us forward to how a relationship with God works. Because the ancient world knew that there needed to be a sacrifice. That wasn't unusual. And there was lots of sacrifices going on since the Garden of Eden, even Cain and Abel. But the world, the way they thought of sacrifices, they were always trying to appease God through the sacrifice. But Israel's going to be different because here we're seeing this classic text on Israel's sacrificial system, really, the foundation of it. And we're getting a hint at what makes it so different. It's God who's going to provide. Abraham's job was to believe, and God would provide the sacrifice. The seed was supposed to die, but God would provide the lamb, a substitute. End of verse 8, beginning of verse 9. So they both, so they went both of them together. So it says that again. End of verse 6, they went together. Then Isaac's like, wait, 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 wait. And Abraham answers. And now they continue on. And that's, I think, a demonstration of Isaac's faith. And it says, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar, altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And you, you kind of have to think about that. First of all, um, what would it have been like to build that altar? We're, uh, we're reading through this with the kids in a different translation, and they don't, just, they don't call it the altar. They call it the slaughter site, the slaughter site. That's an intense, uh, intense way of putting it, and that's really what it is, something you kill something on. But building that, building that altar... Abraham's built a lot of altars in his day, actually, up to this point, but this is probably uh, the most difficult one for him. And then how did Abraham get Isaac up there if Isaac was, like, over the age of 20? Um, especially because then Abraham would have been, like, 120 himself. And how did he bind him? That would have required Isaac's participation, for sure. So this took faith on Abraham's part again, but again also on Isaac's. Um, then verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And what a graphic word, slaughter. And what a, what a moment. Because what does it look like is happening here? It looks like murder. It looks like a father killing his son. It looks like God ending his plan. This is a moment, right? Here, the future of the world is in jeopardy. And it seems like God is the one who's doing it. And yet Abraham takes the knife in obedience, trusting. He's so, he's so sure of God's faithfulness to his promise that he's come up with this idea in his mind. I don't know if during those three days he was trying to figure out how is God going to keep his promise and do good the way he said he would when this is what he's asking me to do. That's how faith works. God is, I know, I know that God is going to be faithful to his promise. I know. This is how it looks. It looks evil. It looks like everything, everything that I've ever thought about how God worked is, is wrong, but I know, I know God's going to keep his promise. So Abraham thought it must be that God's going to raise him from the dead because I know God's good. And he picks up the knife. And uh, Martin Luther said, if God blinked at this moment, uh, Isaac, would be, uh, <laughs> Isaac would be dead. But, of course, God doesn't blink. And verse 11, 
the angel of the Lord calls to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He says it twice here. Abraham, Abraham. And again, Abraham responds, here I am, Hanene, at your service. <laughs> but I wonder if his voice was shaking this time. And God stops him, verse 12. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. So it's kind of interesting that he says it twice because God, he doesn't stutter. Some people have thought he says it twice because it was such an urgent moment. You can imagine how tensed up Abraham must have been to get to this moment where he's going to um, slay his son. Like it must have been, it must have just as a human, you would have to be so, uh, so focused. So some people think it's because of that. God's like, stop, no, no, seriously, D no, don't even, don't even touch him. But also, before they would sacrifice a lamb, they would lay their hand on it. And so maybe that's the first command, don't lay your hand on him. Don't do anything. And why? why? Why does he stop him? He says, for now I know that you fear God. And so what was the test? It was to see if Abraham feared God, feared God. And that's a little bit ironic because you remember back uh, with Abimelech, why did Abraham say that he uh, didn't allow, uh, or that he did allow his wife to get married to Abimelech? He said, I didn't think there was any fear of God in this place. And uh, clearly he wasn't fearing God at that moment. And so God is testing Abraham here. He's like, no, seriously, do, do you fear me? Do you fear me? And yet fear of God is a big biblical word. It means reverence. It means it has to do with obedience, uh, awe, faith, love, trust. They're all part of fearing God. And this act demonstrates Abraham fears God. God says, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, which I think tells us what God wants from his people, right? This is supposed to teach Israel. And what does it teach Israel? One thing it teaches is that God wants them to fear him. He doesn't just want their sacrifice. He wants their heart. And now that Abraham's demonstrated he fears God, he believes, all of a sudden he sees a ram, verse 13. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Which uh, sounds like what? That sounds like what happened in chapter 21 to Hagar, if you remember. She thinks Ishmael's about to die, and she cries out to God, and the angel speaks to her, and then it says, God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And with Hagar, you think, how could you miss a well of water if you're like, think you're about to die, and you're dying of thirst? But there was something supernatural going on there, obviously. And I think probably here, it doesn't say it in 22 that God opened his eyes, but it seems like it would have been hard to miss a ram stuck in a thicket by his horns. I don't know much about rams, but I would think a ram stuck in a thicket would probably make some noise. Um, and then, you know, to suddenly see it, how long does it take to build an altar? So it takes, I can't, can't do that just like in one second. So there's like, that ram was stuck in the thicket for a while. Um, so this seems supernatural. And I don't know if it was a wild ram, um, but Abraham goes over and takes the ram, which I think must have been a little bit of a challenge as well. I, he's a shepherd, so I'm sure he's better at it than I would have been. But like if I had to go over and get a ram out of a thicket, um, that would be a challenge. Um, do you ever try to chase, you know, like see those people chasing those pigs and stuff? Like fortunately this ram's stuck, but it's got those... I, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't want to do it, but he does it. Um, tough. He's a tougher old man than I am. 
And then it says he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And um, in other words, it's a substitute. And um, that had to be a powerful point in this story to the people listening to it for the first time because this was the generation of Israelites who had come out of Egypt or the second generation. Um, before they were hearing this, before they entered the promised land, and probably some of them, might, they might have been the firstborn sons who were delivered from death. How? Through a substitute, through a lamb, dying in their place. That's how they were rescued from, from Egypt. And Moses had just explained the whole sacrificial system to them in Leviticus and talked about a burnt offering. And I think this story would help them understand what's going on. The animal was dying in their place. But of course, you know that animal wasn't ultimately able to bear their sin, and that's the limitation of the system. But it wasn't designed, I don't think, to go on forever. It was more like a credit card, the sacrificial system. So the person sinning was supposed to die, but they paid the debt with a credit card, the lamb, but eventually that debt was going to have to be taken care of. How? God's going to provide. God's going to provide uh, someone to die in the place of his people. And that's even what Abraham calls the place where all this happens. If you look at verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And that's one of those places that people think maybe someone other than Moses came and added an explanatory remark later because the Mount of the Lord was where the temple was. And uh, even in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, when, um, when Solomon um, builds the house of the Lord, they say he built it on, in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. That's the only other place in the Bible where the word Moriah is used. But it links what happens to Abraham with the sacrifices at the temple and shows that it's a paradigm or an illustration that can help us understand what's going on there. And yet there's even something more. Verse 15, the angel comes to Abraham a second time and says, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, keep saying that, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And you can see how he's picking now from all the different promises that he already made to Abraham. Uh, this is, as we've been reading the story, God's come different times and made the promise to Abraham different ways, and now he's summarizing all of them. I'll bless you, that's Genesis 12, as the stars of heaven, that maybe is Genesis 13, as the sand, I think that's later, Genesis 15, the gate part, we're going to come back to that one in a minute actually, but he's drawing on all these promises and ending with this idea of the nations of the earth being blessed through Abraham's offspring, which is really similar to what he said before, um, but what's different? What's the one thing that's different here that's actually pretty significant? So when there's repetition in the Bible, one of the most important things for you to look for is for what's different. That's kind of a key um, little Bible reading tool. Like they do a lot of repetition in the Bible, like people at wells or people getting married, you know, wives getting married to some other guy. There's so much repetition in the Bible. They're not, they don't, they know they're repeating themselves. But it's, a, it's also a way of teaching, and part of what happens is they, they, there's one thing that's different or a couple of things that are different in, in, the, in the story they tell the second time, 
and that's also true here, though this isn't a story, it's a promise. And what's different is that Abraham's obedience hasn't been mentioned before. Before, God was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bless the nations through you, and it's clearly all God. But here there's a connection back to Abraham's obedience. And I don't know, but I wonder if this is sort of an illustration of how salvation works, in that it's grace, it's all grace. God chooses to use Israel to bring blessing to the world, and he's going to do that. But for that to happen, Israel was going to have to obey like Abraham. As we keep reading in Exodus, we see that God's going to partner with Israel, which is grace, and they're supposed to be this kingdom of priests. And actually what they're supposed to do is uh, make, it's going to be like Canaan becomes the Garden of Eden again, and the whole there's not going to be diseases. It's going to be this amazing thing that the whole world looks at and sees. But Israel, for that to happen, has to obey, has to obey. And that, of course, is the problem, the whole problem. God's part coming down to partner with, with Israel, and Israel won't obey. And that's part of why Jesus comes. <laughs> to do what Israel uh, wouldn't do. And we even get a hint of that in this text because we read about this offspring here, and at first it seems plural, right? If you look down at Genesis 22:17, he says, I will multiply your offspring, and that's that word seed, um, as the stars of heaven. So that's definitely plural. But then the end of the verse, there's something different. Look at the end of verse 17. It says, and your offspring shall possess the gate of Blank enemies, his enemies. So what, anybody remember from English in school, like is his singular or, or plural? <laughs> Just joking. His is singular. His is singular. And it actually is singular clearly in the, in the, in the Hebrew. There might be a, um, a footnote on it, but that's only because of the, the context. It's definitely in, in the way this is written in the Hebrew, it's, it's a singular um, and that's why it says his and not there, and that's important to establish because it, it leads into the next verse. And your offspring, singular, shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring, that singular offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And this verse is alluded to only one other time in the Psalms, and it's Psalm seventy-two, seventeen, and there it's singular, uh, where he talks about all the people being blessed in him. In him, let all the nations be blessed in him. Talking about the Messiah. So this is how God's going to save the nations. And it may be part of what John the Baptist has in mind when he looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Here he is Abraham's offspring, the one that that ram on the mount was pointing toward. God will provide, and God has provided Jesus. And after uh, the angel tells Abraham this, verse 19 says, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. And who's missing there? Isaac. So that's kind of surprising. And some people read a lot into that, but I think that would probably be over-interpreting. The story starts with Abraham, and it ends with Abraham. Isaac's there. It's just that the writer's not that interested in him right now, actually. It's about God and Abraham. Though I think Isaac, that was pretty cool, but the writer's focused on Abraham. And he just goes back to where he came from. I'm sure Isaac must have been with him. And, the, and then that chapter ends on an unusual note. Like, that was a great chapter, but verse 20, what do we get in verse 20? A list of, of names, right? And we might wonder why. Why does all of a sudden we hear about Milcah and his kids? 
Um, one reason might be that we need a little bit of a breather, honestly. That was a pretty intense scene. Um, if we really were reading it and feeling it, like a father almost killing his son, the promise almost seeming like it was going to end. And then in the next chapter, we're going to read about the death of Sarah. So reading one straight after the other might feel like a little bit much. But there's more to it than that, of course. And look at it. We can see it if we look at it. Verse 20, it says, Now after these things, which is basically the same saying that opened the chapter, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother. That that's always cracks me up, Uz and Buzz. Um, it sounds like uh, two hillbillies that you really want to watch out for. But um, Kemuel, no, he's a little more sophisticated, the father of Aram, Chesed, or Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jid, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Verse 23, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, or you could say his second wife, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makkah. So Abraham's the one God's working through to save the world, and yet it's so fragile for him. He's only got two sons. And Milcah, who's not a primary part of God's great rescue plan, is just having children like one after the other. He actually has how many kids, if you count that? In all. This one you could probably do without counting, actually. Twelve, that's right, yeah. And uh, he has eight to his first wife and four to his second wife, which is, you know who else it worked that way for later? Jacob. Eight to his first wife, four to his second. But that's a long time from now. And here the only two grandchildren they tell us about are Aram and then Rebecca. And I don't know why they tell us about Aram. But obviously, we know why they tell us about Rebecca, because she's a big part of what's going to come next. And what's interesting is that Abraham's just received this promise about his offspring possessing the gate of his enemies. Then he meets someone who tells him about Milcah. And I wonder if Abraham told him about the promise, because when we meet Rebecca later, you know what her relatives are going to say as to why uh, they're kind of excited about her going to be with Isaac? Listen to verse 60 of chapter 24. It says, they blessed Rebekah and they said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him, which is an unusual blessing. And it seems like it's built on what God promised Abraham. So I'm wondering if this person who told Abraham about Milcah, Abraham told him about the promise he just heard from God and he took it back to the family and this kind of became this thing that they meditated on in terms of their hopes for the future, and when they hear about Rebecca going to be with Isaac, they actually bless her using the very promise that God had given Abraham. And um, while it helped them have hope as they look to the future, of course, this chapter helps us have hope as, or helps us understand the past, because we know that Genesis 22 is a picture to help us understand what God has done through Jesus. So how do we know God loves us and will accept us? We can look back at this promise that he made to Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment. And what a fulfillment because God didn't spare his son. Um, there's a story about Martin Luther. He, he was reading uh, Genesis 22 to his family at devotions. And his wife said, Martin, I don't believe it. They were kind of a, um, a vocal family for sure. And she had a lot of passion, his wife, Katie. And she said, Martin, I don't believe it. God would not have treated his son like that. And Martin looked at her and said, but Katie... He did. 
Romans 8, 31 and 32. What shall then we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So if you want proof when you're worried about your sin that God could care about you, you can think about the story of Isaac and then think about the cross. God allowed Abraham to spare his son, but God did not spare his own son. And why? So that he could provide the lamb to die in your place. And certainly we can learn from the example of Abraham because he had a lot less revelation than we do. And yet uh, he trusted that God was faithful to his promises and uh, shows us how, how really to process the world in which we live. We can't understand everything, and there's going to be a lot of times when we look at the world, and if we look at what's happening, and we're going to say, I don't, I don't understand how this could happen, and, and, and God accomplish what he said he was going to accomplish. But what do we do? We need to learn to be like Abraham. Because <laughs> what did Abraham do? He, he knew. He, he rock solid. God is, is good. And God's going to get done what he said he's going to get done. And so he got creative. And he thought it must be because God's going to raise Isaac from the dead. And, uh, of course, God had a different plan than that, a better one, that involved the death and resurrection of his son. And we... We have a, a lot of questions, of course, just like Abraham, but we have a lot, 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 lot more proof than Abraham did that God is faithful to his promises and that God's always going to do just what he said he was going to do. And so let's, let's ask God even now that he'll help us uh, be like Abraham here and like Isaac and uh, obey and do what he calls us to do even when... Uh, we don't know exactly how it's, how it's going to work out because that's, that's really what a relationship with God looks like uh, right now in this world before we get to heaven. Genesis 22, pretty cool, pretty sweet chapter.